This is a conversation with Shurham Kolsravi, a professor at Stockholm University and the author of several books, one of which we'll be talking about extensively today is A Legal Traveler, an Autoethnography of Borders. Shurham had to endure the violence of global north immigration systems when he escaped from Iran to immigrate to Sweden. We talk about his harrowing journey, the plight of migrants facing the violent immigration systems of global north countries today in the EU, US, and UK, how the nation state has unleashed horrific violence globally and how we can move beyond the framework of borders and boundaries, and other topics related to giving up one's homeland without giving up a sense of home. Shurham is one of the most beautiful and powerful writers I've ever encountered, and this was an absolute honor to speak with him. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We have great conversations on a variety of topics. We've also tried to put out print interviews on global protests, particularly in India and Myanmar on the asiaarttours.com website. Here's my conversation now with Shurham Kosravi on his book, A Legal Traveler, an Autoethnography of Borders and What Migrants Have to Endure in Global North Countries. Thank you. My name is Shahram Khosravi. Uh, I was born in Iran and um, I'm a former taxi driver in Stockholm and currently an accidental professor of anthropology at Stockholm University. I have written some books and I have written some articles, but I prefer to, to write stories. So why I'm reaching out to you is uh, your book, A Legal Traveler, An Autoethnography of Borders, uh, was something I really connected to just in terms of a lot of academia, I feel is very much about professors justifying why they should be allowed to be an academic. And your book is written, obviously, from personal experience of your journey into Stockholm, all that you had to endure, and all that the world makes people endure when they're simply trying to go from one border to another. Um, could you discuss why you chose an autoethnography to discuss the issue of borders? And then just in general with what's going on globally, do you see a lot of your work, unfortunately, still very relevant um, is the story that you had to go through, you see, unfortunately, still one that's all too common in our present day? Yes. I'm afraid to say that um, what I wrote in this book uh, is still of relevance today. The book was uh, translated to Italian, to Finnish, and now in Spanish, and soon in Greek, and then 
in Persian, and it says something because it was written 10 years ago, but still um, people are reading that and using it in different uh, courses and it's translated. It says something about this, that, that the ETs have something to say about the current situation. And, and this is sad because, um, because the book is about bordering practices, borders, and people who are exposed by, by borders uh, and the, the horrible situation of undocumented people. Um, the reason I wrote the book in this form was, um, was not my intention from beginning, but it was something which was developed during the writing process. And it became autoethnography when I realized that I was interviewing people and documented migrants. And I realized how much their experiences overlap with mine because I was also undocumented migrant myself uh, uh, before. So, uh, and I thought when I write about other people suffering, so why not should I write about myself and involve my, my own experience? So autobiography is not autobiography. This is not a story of only me, but this is the kind of linking different experience. So um, I am contacted um, by people from Ecuador, Chile, United States, China, India, you name it, yeah? And people say, Sham, I read your book and this is my story, my experience too, or this is my, my parents' experience. And this is what I wanted to do with this book, linking experience. Um, and, uh, and, and not only isolated individual experiences, but we are talking about collective historical experience. So this was, uh, this was the, the main uh, mission or reason behind writing this book. And Shuram, I was uh, just listening to you and, and I wrote down sort of Franz Fanon. And when, when you say migrant, I mean, anyone who reads your book and I say this is someone who is well read. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a book of a human being. You you read it and you feel like you can reach out and and touch you, um, reach out and shake your hand. And I I just wanted to ask in in the experience of writing this book, perhaps like a Fanon and other individuals who've had to go through the nation state, who've had to deal with. Um, how whiteness separates and sorts us into the worthy and unworthy. How did you remember or re-experience your humanity through the process of writing this book and, and realize that these labels like migrant or illegal are just that, they're, they're labels? Actually, um, and I'm glad that when I wrote this book, 
I was not very well, um, you know, um, uh, in, in, I was not very well informed or well read in, in, in uh, post-colonial uh, post literature. Of course, I know about Fanon, but I was not, you know, about this, this uh, very much about decolonizing, which is very, very, very much today. And I'm, I'm, I'm very involved in that too. But when I was writing that book, I was not interested in um, theory. I was, um, I wanted to tell a story. And, and t telling a story for me is a kind of terrorizing too. So, so I'm not saying that it's not about terrorizing. Um, so, so this book maybe is not very theoretical, but it's very terrorizing at, this, at the same time. Um, so I think for me was more important to go deep in my, uh, my feelings, my emotions, and talking honestly, frankly, about what migration means uh, in terms of uh, uh, experiences, yeah? Physical experiences and non-physical experiences, mental experiences. Uh, so again, um, it was maybe, maybe it wasn't me, for me, I needed to, to, to read a book like this um, and I couldn't find. And I decided to write such a book myself. Um, so, um, so that was the, 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 the reason to, to tell a story what, 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 what migration, what migration means, you know, and going beyond this academic genre and, and the, the usual, you know, literature about migration. Something that your book really, really brought to my, my mind in ways I had never thought about before was the way sort of mutual aid is very present when you're trying to get into a state and then become sort of invisibilized or hidden when you become a citizen. Um, could you talk a bit about for migrants and people who have to illegally enter states, the role mutual aid plays? And then, especially for, let's say, Americans who, who are a large part of my audience, um, they're fascinated with countries like Sweden. But in reading your book and, and reading books on, on things like how... Scandinavian prisons try to remake people into workers and that like a lot of the welfare state is about making good workers. How do you see mutual aid as something that the state, uh, maybe in particular the Scandinavian welfare state, tries to make you dependent on the state itself where we're no longer aiding each other it's only going to come from the state and the state is going to be able to control who gets what. Um, could you talk a bit about that, that experience of, of mutual aid as a migrant and then how the state is able to control aid in a way that makes it not mutual, 
when you become a citizen of, of in particular, the Scandinavian states? I think, um, as I write in the book, it's, uh, you know, it, it comes in, rela- in, in terms of relationship between guest and host. And, and who is the host and who is the guest? And this relationship, this hospitality relationship, is always conditional. And it's always conditional in terms of that the state or the majority society uh, are the one who puts the condition and they can change that condition all the time. This is why for me, borders are not any, any more only borders of a state between two countries, but borders can be found anywhere, anytime. So no matter how many borders you cross, you have always a border ahead of you. And this this is something we see, even if you are citizen of a country, if you are naturalized in Norway, and this happens in Norway, actually, there are many examples that the Norwegian state withdraw citizenship and deport people back to uh, Somaliland or to, to Sri Lanka or to Palestine. So, so citizenship is not anymore a guarantee that you will have access to your citizenship law for, for, for life. Um, so, so this is a conditional, very fragile uh, condition for, for racialized people. Uh, so this is this is something also something which is changing all the time to, to divorce. Um, so not only undocumented migrants or asylum seekers, but also racialized citizens are more and more targeted by by bordering practices and border regimes. In reading your book, survival is very naked. That. You you outline in very transparent detail the people who don't make it, and that a lot of it came down to not that you were the brightest, or you know that you could you couldn't code your way out. You know, like a lot of politicians sort of offer us as a, I think a very silly uh, framework for how people actually how people actually. Uh, become successful. It, a lot of it was just luck, and a lot of it was people decided to help you. And I guess I, I would be curious to know, within more of a welfare state, how you've reflected on this idea of people helping each other versus we have to depend on the state. And if the state is generous, we're, we we love it. And if the state is is selfish, we live in fear. I, I may, this, we talk about Sweden, Swedish welfare state um, started, I don't know, the project started 100 years ago. And the aim was that no one should be dependent on other people, yeah? Uh, so if you need a problem, you go to the state. And that's a beautiful idea. The problem is that after 100 years, what we see is 
loneliness because people can go to each other and they go to the state for getting help. So, so we see a lonely nation. Loneliness is a huge problem in Sweden. And this is generally, so this is backside the welfare system we have. And this is not a critic of welfare system, which is very good, the idea is good. So, so the question is how we can, we can solve the problem of loneliness at the same time we keep this welfare system, which is shrinking every year now. I mean, Sweden is not the same Sweden I came to 30 years ago and welfare system I, I, I knew then this is not existing anymore. Um, and, um, and this welfare system of course becomes even harder to get access for, for migrants. So if you are undocumented migrant in Sweden, you have harder time than being undocumented migrant in the United States. Because if you don't have security numbers here, you cannot even rent a DVD. I mean, if nobody rent a DVD anymore, but <laughs> that's an example. So, so in countries like Italy, Greece, that informality is bigger, so undocumented migrants can survive easier. You cannot get access to a doctor here if you are undocumented. But in, 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 in Greece or in Italy, you can go to a private clinic and, and get, even if you are undocumented. So you pay and you get, get some help visiting a doctor. So, so this welfare system, which regulates every single detail of life to protect, but, but this is also means exclusion of others who cannot be included namely undocumented migrants. So this is why I say life in, in welfare, welfare state um, countries like Sweden for undocumented migrants is harder than, than, than for example, in Italy or Spain or Greece or Turkey. The school of thought that I've long gravitated to is anarchism, I think in part as an Armenian my family saw state violence up close in a way that is very traumatizing of, of, of genocide. And many other people have shared this trauma of seeing the full violence of the state up close. And I, I suppose I'm wondering for you as someone who's thought very deeply about these matters, have you come to peace with the state? Do you think that that is sort of where our future lies as a society, as a global society facing all these problems? Or do you see alternative forms emerging? And you don't need to be very specific here, but I'm just curious as someone who sometimes I think anarchism is just something I use as therapy because I'm, I can't see a therapist. Uh, so I, I, I find a philosophy in instead, but how, how have you processed all that the state has put you through and do you still see the state as something that is 
uh, useful or, or something that we need to move beyond? Um, I think um, in, in short term, in, as a practical answer is uh, we still need states to, to, uh, to protect uh, vulnerable groups, yeah? Um, but if you ask me for a political vision, I prefer to think in form of homelessness. And homelessness is a, is a kind of intellectual um, way of being, you know, to imagine a different future for, for a different form of organizing humanity, which is not linked to territory, which is not linked to homeland, which is not linked to nation. Yeah? Nation state system does not um, come to us from God or nature. This is something we created not long time ago. So, we create that so we can, uh, we made that, we can unmade that, we can remake that. I think <clears throat> for me, a, a political vision is towards um, uh, destroying this system and re remaking um, uh, borders differently, yeah? Or removing borders and which should be accompanied by organizing other sections of society, how resources are distributed, etc. So for me, the vision for future is homelessness, to remove idea about home and home homelands. And I, here I don't talk about houses, people need houses, people need shelter, yeah? So we should not confuse uh, those two together. But um, I'm against nation-state system. And I think this nation-state system has caused so much suffering for, for uh, many people. Certainly, that's something um, <laughs> that you can pull up Twitter right now, and it's just images of people getting shot <laughs> globally. It's just a, it's, it's a kaleidoscope of suffering, and I'm not sure it collects to, it, it, it's just suffering, and you can spin it, like if you ever had a kaleidoscope as a kid, you can just spin it and spin it, but it doesn't, for me at, at least, connect to a larger global idea of how we can rebel against the forces that are causing this suffering. Um, there's some preliminary theories. I mean, the Arab Spring was something that had, uh, I think we, we narrate over what it actually was quite a bit, as opposed to looking at how connected those movements were. But right now in, in Asia, Southeast Asia, there's digital activists are trying to build out networks and Black Lives Matter was pretty interesting, um, but I'm always I'm looking for like the global consciousness, I guess, that takes us past the nation state or helps us all talk to one another 
past the sort of mental barriers we all have as uh, as as people who see themselves as citizens. Have have you had to deal with this with your your students as well? Have, how do you how do you think through this sort of idea of universalism? I guess before we we actually move into the uh, some of the quotes I want to I talk to you about, but. How, how have you thought through putting that idea into practice of, I want to connect with people on a universal level? Yeah, that, that, that's something, uh, you know, I, 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 I think I, I, I have, you know, practiced all the time um, uh, in the past maybe 20 years, you know, I, I, and it is always beyond this kind of nation state system, always more a class-based, you know, solidarity rather than uh, ethnicity or nationality. Um, and I think this is, this is, this is the main, you know, this is very sad when, for example, um, uh, a few years ago, and for the first time, Iranian workers could demonstrate, uh, have a manifestation first of May, they protested against uh, presence of Afghan migrants. But this is very sad to see how one marginalized group is uh, putting against another marginalized group instead of protecting, you know, sharing experiences, uh, making allies, and and uh, you know, saying. If we are poor, this is because of a state. If we don't have access to healthcare systems, this is because of a state and, and the capital, not, not migrants, yeah? Uh, so, so I think this kind of making allies and sharing experiences and linking experiences is, uh, is, is main uh, uh, goal. For, for organizing and mobilizing. Uh, so this is this is this is my 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 vision and my uh, mission. Yeah, it's it's something you hear all the time in Asia. Where I think right now. So I was just talking to an Indonesian activist who the something that's happening right now in Asia is this thing called the Milk Tea Alliance. Well, it's this digital movement where they're trying to link together protest knowledge from Hong Kong to Thailand to Myanmar uh, to Indonesia. Uh, I'm, I'm missing one of the nations there, but they're trying to sh- create sort of a hub of protest knowledge where they share, oh, Thailand, uh, and share this knowledge back and forth. What's worked in protesting, what hasn't worked what sort of armor you need against security forces, um, how to sort of build underground medical facilities. And I think what some people are articulating, um, I think uh, especially for, well, this might just be luck of the draw. I know someone very brilliant in Indonesia who wrote a little bit about this today, and she essentially alluded to the fact of, well, why do we need these nations? Like, if we're all banding together against these uh, forces of tyranny, why do we need? Why do we still want these nations after we win? You know, after if if Thailand gets democracy and Hong Kong gets democracy and uh, and, and Indonesia gets democracy, 
that why are we trying to recreate the chauvinism that's being tyrannical to us in the first place? And um, I'm wondering if you have any insight to that from your own experiences in Iran that maybe would be valuable for listeners in Asia to, to hear. Uh, yes, I, I think this is this is the main problem. I mean, right now when I talk to you, is it three days after uh, a horrible massacre of uh, poor ethnic minorities at the border between Iran and Pakistan, when poor people are forced to smuggle fumes to survive, to earn very small money to, to, to bring food for their children on, to the table. Um, and they were killed by border guards and, and, and then became a huge protest and more people were get killed. Um, but, you know, the, the rest of the country is not so much discussion about that. So this is very sad that majority society is not getting involved in, in, um, in the protest of ethnic minorities that this is about poverty, this is about state violence. Uh, so everyone should be involved, no matter, you know, class, color of skin or, or ethnicity or religion. Um, and I think this is the most challenging part of the, the, the work is, is uh, how to go beyond this kind of barriers these kind of borders, yeah? And say, yeah, no matter your religion, ethnicity, we have something in common. And this is, uh, this is poverty, this is a state violence, how we can protect each other. Um, I think this is, this is the most challenging part because, you know, nationalism has been so much, uh, um, so much clever so much smart system in using emotion of people, you know, playing with emotions of people in popular culture, in art, in, you know, to, to establish so strong attachment to, to, to nationalism and nation state system. So to challenge that is, is, is not easy. It takes time, but, but as said, we made that some time ago. We can remade that. We can unmade that. So I'm hopeful. I am uh, Arab American. My family's Lebanese and Armenian. And I do feel at times where the world is literally melting, I hold on to that as a way to feel like I'm part of something uh, bigger than myself. You know, I have very intimate memories of my grandfather, you know, uh, <laughs> delicately placing olives and Syrian bread and this sort of this mezza spread. And for me, there's it, it, I, I, I struggle how to build that constellation while holding on to that love. How do I build this sort of universal framework while still holding on to everything I love about that very intimate identity? No, no, I think we, we do that all the time. Maybe we thought not calling it things, you know, label it as... Uh, but, for example, the friends I'm, I'm, uh, I'm staying now, 
uh, had some lunch and wine with, they, they are Palestinians, yeah? They are Italian Palestinian family and we talked, you know, during the lunch, we talked about um, COVID-19 and, and, and vaccines and how Israeli forces are, are making vaccination, you know, difficult for Palestinians. So, so that kind of, you know, engagement is, is already there all the time. Uh, but how we can turn it into practice? Yeah, that's another question. Well, for me, it's, it's do you feel like, do you, can we, do we need to give up that, that sort of Lebanese-ness or Iranian-ness to build that universalism? I don't know what Iranian-ness means. I know, for example, if uh, I know that the place I come from, I, I know, you know people, you know, the, the, the first 20 years of my life, but that's not Iran, you know, that's a small village. So, uh, so I think maybe we, we sometimes, we, we, we talk about, you know, nationality and national, uh, you know, identities without, uh, knowing exactly what we are talking about, um, so so I I don't know. I mean, I'm Iranian. I don't know. No, I know. I I I I understand exactly what you mean. Um, this uh, uh, the first part of your book is just essentially describing where you grew up and. It wouldn't have mattered if it was Iran. It wouldn't have mattered if it was Iraq. It wouldn't have mattered if it was Syria. It was where you grew up. I, I guess what I'm asking is, it, are, are those beautiful memories we have of eating figs in the mountains or being with people that we love, do we need to give those up to build that universalism? No, I think this is, I mean, we cannot demand that. I, we cannot expect that. I mean, this is this is why I, I, when I say, I mean, this kind of being home, feeling at home, being with people you love, but not turning it into homeland, yeah? Uh, that that beautiful home is, is open. This is why I emphasize, I write about my mother, you know, uh, uh, desires to, to, to have open, open doors, yeah? That kind of, you know, that, that home is uh, defined by, 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 uh, by open doors, yeah? So, 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 uh, so sharing is important, yeah? So that the beauty for me, if there is a beauty for that place, that village, that memories is exactly the beauty of sharing, not beauty of uh, properties or owning or closing. This is mine. Uh, yeah. So 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 maybe this is this is why the, the memory is beautiful still, uh, and this is because of that that. Uh, sharing and openness. It, it does feel like with the welfare state, there's a lot of this tension you've talked about of the guest and the host, that so much of what Swedes offer the guest, you know, is, is very conditional 
um, and that they are the host, you are the guest, and there's all this pressure that comes with that. How do your students sort of deal with this idea of sort of unconditional giving doors open in this welfare state that you've talked about is very regimented? Yeah, I think it's, it's not easy. I mean, not only for Swedish students, but also for, I mean, even for Iranian students, you know, as I said, they, they, I mean, kids, I mean, they go to school and they grow up with nation state system, with the idea of belonging to a nation of nationalism, you know, worshipping of uh, state and history and this or that, this glorious past, blah, blah, blah. So to challenge that is not easy, yeah? And um, not easy if you are in Sweden, not easy if you are uh, in other countries. But uh, yes, you're right. I mean, it's not easy yeah, to challenge it. And always, you know, it, um, it, it, and this, this is good because it, it, you, 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 you touch uh, upon something uh, which uh, irritates them, some of them, and but that's good because it, it brings up discussions and debate, and, and that's good. And this is, for me, this is the, the goal of teaching, yes. To change something, yes. You, you write in um, the process of immigrating to Sweden what refugees have to go through in terms of the knowledge sort of they exchange. And, and a big part of that is you have to play the part of the refugee. It, it's, you would, you would think in an era of sort of um, really neoliberalism measuring out human worth down to like the second, that that's all that people would calculate. But no, even in, you know, in a, in a Sweden that has, uh, professionalized, uh, not professionalized, but has uh, come up with technical systems for immigration, a lot of it is still performance. And you write about that. To have a chance of getting a refugee status, one must have the ability to translate one's life story into Eurocentric juridical language and to perform the role expected of a refugee. Like other newcomers to Kant Station, I was advised to wear dirty clothes when going to the UNHCR for the interview and to look, quote, sad and, quote, profound. And you're, <laughs> I, I just, I don't understand in this, this, this paradox of we're in this era of everyone's under surveillance, everything you do is being measured at every single moment, you're getting pitted against any other human being in any job you have, anything you do. Why is this performance of the refugee, and I think maybe we alluded to this in our last question about Swedes wanting to feel, or any host nation wanting to feel like they're the benevolent host, why is this performance still important in this era of like unimaginable surveillance and datization of who states let in and who they keep out? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, they, they exist parallel to each other, um, this surveillance and observation and monitoring and documenting. 
At the same time, there is an idea of uh, refugeeness and who is refugee, who is the real refugee, genuine refugee. And this genuine refugeeness is linked to suffering. And this is very deep rooted in, um, in, in visual representation, in art representation, in uh, news representations of, of refugees. And, and to see a happy, uh, you know, well-dressed, uh, rich refugee, or not re rich a refugee, but the refugee who, who, who has money, this has become a contradictory. Um, so this is why performance is important. That that you you, you I mean um, that that you have to 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 perform that refugeeness. Uh, otherwise, you cannot be seen as refugee in your application. Uh, maybe will be rejected because because a human being sitting and, and judging and looking at you and say, okay, this person is happy, so why should we help him? Uh, or look at him, he, or look at her, you know, she is well-dressed and she she's, uh, she's not a real refugee because real refugee is the one I see on news and who is sitting and crying in dirty clothes somewhere in, in in somewhere in Africa or Asia. Um, so I think that this visual representation uh, play a huge role in how we imagine who, who is real and who is not real, a refugee. Do you feel for this era, like, is it okay that there are rich refugees and poor refugees? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that you know, those people who are in camps and, and are dying in the Mediterranean Sea or dying at the border between Mexico and United States. They don't. They they are not rich. If you have money, you can buy citizenship. Yeah. If you have money, you can invest that money in Canada and get some permission to to move there. So 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 yeah. So, so class is very important. Yeah. Um, we don't, uh, we should not forget that, yeah. But I, I try to say uh, what refugeeness uh, is, is constructed, uh, our idea of who is a real refugee is linked to, to poverty and suffering. I did tell a couple journalists, I said, if you read this book for one reason, read it for this figure. And this is a figure of, the imprisoned Kurdish existentialist Amir Hediari. And this is how you introduce him. And then uh, Amir is such a brilliant figure. I'm going to give him a black quote and then ask you a question. And I'll, I'll get you out of here after that. Um, so this is how you introduce Amir. The best known Dalal among Iranians, Iraqis, and Kurds is undoubtedly Amir Hediari. Born in 1953 to Kurdish parents in Iran over more than two decades Tens of thousands of asylum seekers reach Europe through the agency of his organization. He has a good reputation for honesty and professionalism. So this is someone you sort of got to know through the networks of people who smuggle uh, migrants in and out of Europe. And you got to interview him. And this is a black quote from Amir. And then uh, I'm going to turn to you for some insight into his wisdom. 
Uh, Amir has this to say about uh, migrants and illegal immigration. Kurds have always lived under political oppression and thus become familiar with social and political issues early in life. After the 1979 revolution, I, Amir, became a political activist. I was 26 years old and joined a socialist movement as a guerrilla. I was shot and received injuries to my legs. In 1980, I was sent to Sweden via Turkey for treatment. Kurdish people were rejected in every country. This made me angry, so I went back to Turkey to help my people. Thousands of Kurdish refugees were trapped in Turkey and could be deported to Iran any day. We had to do something. I asked for help from the United Nations in Ankara, from the embassies in Western countries to pressure the Turkish state not to deport Tur Kurds in vain. So what about all those nice words on human rights we had heard from the West? I realized soon that no one would help us. I started my own movement, which has not finished. I decided to send people in need to safety. So obviously, uh, that's the end quote. And Amir is pretty, he's awesome. I mean, he's just one of the most interesting individuals I've ever read in print. Um, I, I, you know, I, I have all these words written out here. I don't want to go through processing them like I'm an academic. He's just an, an, a, a fascinating figure. And I'm wondering, um, someone said to me, that to fight a lot of these systems that we're up against uh, in terms of immigration, in terms of capitalism, in terms of racism, in terms of the carceral state, we're going to have to go through legal methods and illegal methods. That there's going to be channels for us to deal with these things legally, but ultimately to overcome them, like Amir, who's in prison for just trying to seek freedom for his Kurdish people, we're going to have to choose illegal methods. Could, could you talk a bit about what Amir taught you? And then for my question, what do you think of legal methods and illegal methods as being necessary to build uh, a future where we all can live together? I think, I mean, as Amir put it very, very good. Uh, I mean, you cannot do it legally if you wait for the legal way to, to, to get help, it's always too late, you know? So as he did, I think this is the, the, the way uh, sometimes we have to do, yeah? We have to move illegally, we have to smuggle, we have to uh, fight back uh, outside the legal regime. Otherwise we don't survive. Um, and this is what I learned from him, to see like a smuggler uh, and uh, how to look at uh, the, how to look at the borders from the other side, how to look at uh, state, nation state system from outside. Um, and I'm still in contact with him. He has been deported twice from Europe and he has a simple life somewhere in a village, uh, somewhere in the world. I, uh, and um, sure. yeah, yes. I'm, I'm very grateful to have met him and learned from him. I'm gonna leave you with something very simple. Um, there's a lot of crises in the world from uh, what's happening in, in Iran to what's happening in South America to just point a finger at the globe. 
right now people are not happy with the nation state and the capitalism within. Do you have any general advice to some of the crises you've seen and um, where can people find your work if you'd like, if you think it'd be helpful for them to study with you? Um, a few years ago, I started uh, a critical border studies. Um, I, I ran, um, you know, a platform for interaction between scholars, activists, artists, uh, to, to bring together voices, uh, talk to each other. And now, because of this COVID-19 crisis, mostly online activities, uh, I have, um, there is a Facebook page, uh, Critical Border Studies, so please uh, join us. And, uh, uh, and also, you know, my page at Stockholm University, um, Sharon Pastrabi, Stockholm University, uh, Google it and you find me. I think it's important to, to, uh, to, to be hopeful and uh, not to necessarily be optimistic, but hopeful, yeah? uh, and uh, keep conversation beyond borders. <laughs>